Hi, dreamers. Last weekend, we took a detour to our neighbors to the east, Las Vegas, Nevada. I really hope you enjoyed that story as much as I enjoyed telling it to you. I touched on a little bit about the history of organized crime. More specifically, the relationship casino mogul Benny Binion had with it. But as you noticed, the episode went a little bit long, so I steered clear of getting too deep into the woods about it. And there are several podcasts out there that are dedicated to the topic of the mafia, so there is no need for me to get that in-depth about it. But if any of you listening are like me, I mentioned in episode 40 that I have not extensively researched the history of organized crime or how it pertains to the rise of Las Vegas. As I went along in the story, I became curious myself, wanting to know a little bit more about the subject, so I figured I'd put up a short bonus just in case anyone would like to join me for this cursory look at the tale of Las Vegas and the Mafia. So what is the Mafia? Specifically, the American Mafia. According to History.com, it is an organized crime network operated by Italian Americans across the United States, most prominently in New York and Chicago. The Mafia's power and influence skyrocketed during the Prohibition era of the 1920s with an extensive illegal liquor trade. Once Prohibition came to an end and liquor was no longer illegal, the Mafia shifted its criminal interests into other areas such as drug trafficking and illegal gambling. They also had their hand into labor unions and legitimate businesses as well, such as construction, manufacturing, waste management, trucking, nightclubs, restaurants, and the garment industry. They'd make enormous amounts of money via kickbacks and shakedowns. A key to being able to get away with this was being able to have corrupt politicians, leaders of the community, and law enforcement in their pockets, not to mention their abilities to control witnesses and juries if they ever did get in some hot water. The Mafia quickly became known for having a penchant for violence, and some made men became notorious, well-known individuals like Al Capone, Bugsy Siegel, Lucky Luciano, Sam Giacana, Mickey Cohen, Meyer Lansky, James Whitey Bulger, and John Gotti. These are men who have become popular subjects of Mafia lore. Towards the end of the 1800s, headed into the early 1900s, there was an influx of Italian immigrants flocking to the United States, searching, of course, for a better life, better jobs, and the American dream. In New York City, the population of Italians grew from 20,000 in 1880 to over 500,000 immigrants plus first-generation Italian-Americans as the country was entering into the 20th century. And, as in many largely populated areas, it was a hotbed for criminal activity. Gangs began to form, and the easiest targets are always within their own communities. When the 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution went into effect in 1920, 
It effectively banned the sale, manufacture, and transportation of alcoholic beverages, commonly known as prohibition. Of course, this opened up the floodgates for sale, manufacture, and transportation of illicit alcoholic beverages. And the American Mafia was all over this, joining in this very, very lucrative bootlegging venture, which essentially afforded them the ability to completely evolve into a refined, well-respective criminal conglomerate. And they became good at what they did. They smuggled, they laundered money, and they were good at buying off public officials and police. As the 1920s were coming to an end, a power struggle began brewing between two of New York City's largest Italian-American gangs, which eventually ended in 1931 when crime boss Salvatore Maranzano rose to the top, pretty much proclaiming himself the boss of all bosses in New York. But another mobster, who was rising in the ranks, a guy by the name of Lucky Luciano, he had his eye on that top spot. He had Salvatore taken out that same year that he had risen to power. Lucky Luciano spearheaded the formation of a centralized group called the Commission to be a kind of board of directors for the Mafia. You see, by this time, there were almost two dozen crime families throughout the United States. New York, which was the Mafia capital, had five main families. But in all the other cities, there was only one family per city. It would be the task of the commission to essentially lay down some rules, as well as function as the go-between when it was necessary to arbitrate disputes amongst rivaling families. So, there is a hierarchy within each of the Mafia families, with the boss being at the top. This boss was the one who would not have his authority challenged by anyone and not only that, he was due a portion of any money made by everyone who was in his family. The second in command has the title of underboss. Next in line were the capos or captains. They were each in charge of at least 10 soldiers who were made men inducted into the family. Next, there would be a consigliere who is kind of an advisor of sorts. And at the very bottom were associates, those who did business with the mafia but were not actually made men. How does one become a part of the family? Well, it's not that easy. First and foremost, you have to be Italian, like 100% Italian. And you have to be able to prove it if your heritage is under question. If you're not Italian, you may have mafia ties. You may be associated with the mafia family members, but you can never become a made man. In addition, if you have any ties to law enforcement, either you've been an officer in the past, or you've been a corrections officer, or you have a family member that is associated with law enforcement in any way, then you are automatically ineligible to ever being a made man. And there is a requirement one must fulfill in order to become fully inducted into the family. One must complete a contract killing, known as making your bones. 
and this actually only became a requirement sometime during the 80s. The old rules used to dictate that you only needed to be a participant of a carried out contract hit. You didn't necessarily have to be the guy that actually did the hit. Even then, before anyone could become a made man, he needed to be sponsored by an already made man. That person would have to vouch for the guy, guarantee that he's reliable and capable of being a part of the family. And if something were to go wrong with the potential family member, the heat would come down on that sponsor. And when someone becomes officially a made man, there is a ceremony with some rituals. One must take an oath of loyalty and swear to a code of silence. There were also other rules that included never fighting with each other and never having an affair with another family member's girlfriend or wife. So, when Prohibition ended in 1933, it was time for the Mafia to move on to other illegal activities. Stuff like loan sharking, getting into the sex trade industry, and of course, one of the topics of episode 40, illegal gambling. By the 1950s, in the United States, there were 24 established crime families with at least 5,000 members, along with countless associates they conducted business with across the country. And this is where I surmise Benny Binion stood, the patriarch of the Binion family, the father of the subject of episode 40. Because of his last name, I guess that he wasn't Italian enough to have ever been a full-fledged mafia member, but he would definitely be one of those you'd hear described as having strong ties to the mafia. He would be one of those associates they'd deal with, all the while running his gambling racket in Dallas and then eventually in Las Vegas. The Mafia stayed strong for upwards of five or six decades, from the 1920s well into the 1980s. Up until the 60s, it seems that the powers that be in the American government thought perhaps the Mafia was a myth or some kind of urban legend, that there was no way this wide-reaching national Italian-American network of organized criminals actually existed. Even FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover didn't believe it, thinking that these criminals weren't working beyond their local levels. And because of this, there really wasn't much of an attempt to thwart their activities until the 1960s. That's when Hoover finally decided the Mafia was actually a thing. And so, what they always say, what goes up must come down. And the government was finally poised to begin to dismantle the Mafia. In 1970, the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization, or RICO Act, was signed into law. This would prove to be an important weapon for law enforcement to begin the war on organized crime. It gave prosecutors the authority to pursue criminal charges against crime families, as well as their sources of money-making, both legal and illegal all the same. In the 80s and the 90s, many powerful, high-level made men were toppled by RICO laws. And a side effect of the realization that these men were going to be facing some hard time caused them to make the decision to break that sacred code of loyalty and silence they had once been sworn to. They were offered deals, 
testify against other members of the family, and earn yourself a ticket to the Witness Protection Program. And as the times changed, demographics changed as well. Italian neighborhoods were becoming less and less limited to being solidly Italian only. They were spreading out, becoming more infused with society as a whole, making recruiting more of a challenge. Today, the mafia is a flicker of what it used to be, but there are still some out there, still loan sharking, still running illegal gambling, and they are still involved in labor unions and legit businesses. A part of its survival is due to 9-11. You see, after the terrorist attacks, funding that was used to combat organized crime was funneled into efforts to combat terrorism, thus giving a dwindling mafia some room to breathe. The current state of the mafia is kind of what it was meant to be when it first started. Stay underground, stay low-key, make your money, but stay strong. In an interview with Vice.com, Scott Bernstein, an expert on La Cosa Nostra, which is what the mafia is referred to in Italian, said, The mafia in America today is still surviving. However, it's not thriving like it once was. Serious mob activity still exists, although not as greased into the high levels of political power and the country's infrastructure as in the mafia's golden era of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Traditional mob hotbeds like New York, Chicago, Detroit, Boston, Providence, Philadelphia, and New Jersey are still operational and function at a consistent level, though some have been hampered by legal assaults in recent years, while other cities with a rich mob history like Cleveland, Milwaukee, Kansas City, St. Louis, Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, New Orleans, and Tampa Bay are either defunct altogether or heading quickly in that direction. The mafia lineage is not being passed on down to the younger generation as it had been in the past, and a lot of mafia members, unlike in the mob's heyday, are refraining from bringing their sons into the family business. Gambling has always been an integral part of the money-making for the mafia, and they were into everything, card games, wagering on sports, horse races, and this was very, very lucrative for them. The Mafia ran countless illegal gaming operations all over the United States, and they were pretty posh, too. People were treated well. They wanted to be there. And of course, law enforcement were handsomely compensated to keep looking the other way. But something changed in 1931. Nevada legalized gambling. At first, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, who wants to go to that dusty old place, right? Well, in the beginning, the gambling in Nevada catered to the locals and to the military personnel stationed in the area. Las Vegas was not an enticing vacation destination whatsoever. This place was right smack in the middle of the desert. The summers there are long and miserable. When I got married in June of 2006 in Vegas, it was like 115 degrees Fahrenheit or 
46 degrees Celsius. Yeah, I just about died. I was ready to go back to California. So, the Mafia really paid no mind to Vegas. Not until after World War II, that is. Even Al Capone was interested in taking his exploits to Vegas, but he never really followed through on that. It wouldn't be until Mafia guys Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky started to recognize what could actually become of Las Vegas. You see, law-abiding Americans looking for fabulous vacation destinations with legal gambling used to have to go to Cuba for that, where gambling was a huge draw and casinos were everywhere. But once the Batista regime was collapsed by Fidel Castro's revolution, and 10 years since the first casino opened its doors in Vegas, Americans would no longer be traveling to Cuba for a very, very long time. So, the only place to go for legal gambling became hot, dusty old Las Vegas. This meant tremendous amounts of earning potential for the Mafia. So, with Bugsy Siegel's ingenuity and vision, and money supplied by the Mafia, the very first resort and casino opened its doors on December 26, 1946, the Flamingo. It would be the first of many. And not only would this be profitable, but legal as well. Now, as for Meyer Lansky, he did not want to take the fall if the Vegas idea flopped, so he had put Bugsy in charge of the whole thing and it was completely up to him to raise the money and get the backing for it to come to fruition. And the Flamingo struggled when it opened. There was just about no interest in Vegas, like at all. I told you, take away the glitz and glamour of it all now, and it's just a bunch of dust and yuck. And Bugsy was finding himself in some hot water as well, as he was actually pocketing large amounts of money from the construction funds and the pension funds of unions controlled by the Mafia. When he was found out, the Mafia wanted their money back. But Bugsy, he couldn't cough it up. So, he was shot and killed in the Beverly Hills, California home of his girlfriend, Virginia Hill. Meyer Lansky took the reins of the Flamingo and managed to turn the business around, and soon, the resort was turning huge profits. And with the success of the Flamingo, this opened the doors for many more mafia-financed casinos to spring up in the budding gambling mecca. Next came the Golden Nugget, the Desert Inn, Binion's Horseshoe, of course, the Sands, the Riviera, the Hacienda, the Sahara, the Stardust, the Fremont, the Tropicana, and before long, Vegas was becoming a flourishing tourist destination. But the 1960s marked a change in the hold the Mafia had in Las Vegas. Enter billionaire Howard Hughes into the story. Yes, business magnate, investor, pilot, film director, and philanthropist Howard Hughes. He has a long and storied life, some of which you may be familiar with, but for purposes of this story, we are going to discuss his later years and his dealings in Las Vegas. In the final decade of his life, 
He spent those years living in hotels all over the world, Las Vegas included. He'd always have an entourage made up almost exclusively of Mormons, which is why there is a large Mormon population in Las Vegas today. And no matter what hotel he was staying at, he would always be on the penthouse level. Howard came to Las Vegas by way of railroad car, arriving on Thanksgiving Day of 1966, November 24th, and he took up residence at the Desert Inn. And, as it were, he did not want to leave, and this was causing him some problems with the owners. So, what's a billionaire to do when you're getting flack from the owners of the place who want you to leave and you don't want to go? You buy it. In early 1967, Howard became the proud owner of the Desert Inn Resort and Casino. He turned the eighth floor into his office space, and the ninth floor was his home. And he didn't stop there. He was on a full-blown takeover. And from the looks of it, over the next two years, he purchased six more casinos, including the Castaways, the New Frontier, the Landmark, the Sands, and the Silver Slipper. Incidentally, Howard didn't really want to purchase the tiny Silver Slipper casino. He bought it because the neon slipper-shaped sign annoyed him at night, as it was apparently situated in a spot much too visible from his bedroom window. He promptly moved that slipper out of his view. He also purchased some local television stations during the shopping spree of his. Howard wasn't buying up all these casinos just out of boredom. He actually wanted to affect some change in the town of Las Vegas, and he had a plan, which I'll explain in a moment. He envisioned Las Vegas being much more glamorous than it was at the time. And as a person who owned some major businesses in Vegas, he had a lot of clout, both political and financial. He's even been known to have offered $1 million bribes to both Presidents Richard Nixon and Lyndon B. Johnson to attempt to halt underground nuclear weapons testing under the Nevada desert. Anyway, when all was said and done, Howard had purchased a total of 17 casino resorts. And while he was in the process of doing that, he managed to use his political influence to effect a change in Nevada legislation that prevented corporations from buying interest in hotels, casinos, and resorts. And in buying those 17 resorts himself, he effectively shut down the hold the mafia had on each of these casinos and pretty much all of Las Vegas. He would eventually grow tired of being a casino mogul and got out of the business altogether before his death in 1976. Once he sold off all his interests in casinos, the mafia seeped back into the casino business in Vegas. But the second time around was fleeting. The FBI decided that by the 1980s, they'd had enough of the mafia in Las Vegas. They started cracking down on mafia-owned casinos, cleaned them up, and sold them to legit owners. And these would be the owners who would turn Las Vegas into the family-friendly vacation destination it is today. The mafia guys, they were rounded up most of them facing many, many years in prison. So, in episode 40, 
I told you about how Benny Binion went from controlling the illegal gambling circuit in Dallas, Texas, to opening his legal gambling hall on Fremont Street in Las Vegas, Nevada. Benny was a man connected to the mafia, but he was also very much in the vanguard of what a Vegas casino should be. He believed everyone should be treated as if they are a VIP, having once said, if you want to get rich, you have to make the little people feel like big people. Every casino was giving perks and comps to high rollers, but Benny, he comped and perked everyone, high and low. He was the first to do away with the sawdusted floors and put plush carpeting into his casino. He was the first to offer limousine services to the airport for his guests. He would be one of the few casinos that set the highest limits in town, eventually forcing other casinos to follow suit. When they'd have $50 limits, Benny would offer $500. He would go on to be the first to set his floor limit at $10,000, and he was always willing to take a cash bet, famously taking one for $1 million in 1984, and he won. He would be the first to offer complimentary drinks to slot players. He would also be the only casino to offer cheap, late-night steaks for only $2 each, the meat having come from his own ranch. Despite his shady criminal past, including those pesky murder convictions, Benny continued trudging forward, never really forgetting his roots. A 2015 article in the Las Vegas Review-Journal summed it up pretty nicely. Benny Binion ran what is thought to be the most profitable casino in Las Vegas. Privately held, it was not required to publish public earning reports. But Benny, he didn't work out of an office. He conducted business from a booth in the downstairs restaurant. No appointment was necessary to talk to him. Ask for his ear, and you usually got it. When he'd invite one to sit down and have a bowl of the casino's famous chili, it would likely be a senator or a federal judge. Either that, or it'd be some fellow Texan trading stories of times past. According to Howard Schwartz, an editor at the Gambler's Book Club, Benny was a guy you could shake hands with and feel like you'd met a real American character. That's what made the place. It wasn't the classiest joint in town, but it was authentic and a unique experience. When you met Benny Binion, you felt like you'd been a part of history. Benny was posthumously inducted into the Nevada Gaming Hall of Fame in 1990. I guess I will end this episode now. I really enjoyed taking this introductory look into the American Mafia. If you are interested in learning more about the Mafia or you know of a podcast that you'd like to recommend on the subject, please feel free to post about it on the Facebook page. I've kind of found myself interested in learning more about Bugsy Siegel, and since he was assassinated in California, that's technically a story I could do. We could talk about that too on the discussion page, because I'm not quite sure I'm the right person to talk about the Mafia, to be honest. But my interest is peaked, so let me know what you guys think. Thank you so much for joining me for this special edition of California Dreaming, and it is finally time for us to be leaving Las Vegas. Until next time, sweet dreams.